This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn. And I'm Ann Thompson. And we've got a ton to discuss, Ann, from the WGA strike to some big changes in Oscar season. But perhaps the most important item that we have to get into at the top of the hour is obviously the Met Gala, because that red oh, this carpet. This is the man, most important thing that's happened in the culture. That the entertainment oh, world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> big stuff. Did you see that cockroach? My God. Oh, my God. It flew. Uh, you could tell that the photographer that was photographing the cockroach, they were all waiting for Rihanna to show up. That was part of what was going on at that point. She was very late and there was nothing else to do except make a fuss about the cockroach. But you could tell that the photographer was tempted to squish it at some, yes. you know, and you backed off. That. And yeah. another some other guy eventually put his heel down. On yeah, the no, that was some expert party reporting that, that got out. I don't know if it was Variety or somebody Variety. who got Mark Malkin really did his <laughs> his his best there. And he was also asking a lot of the people on the red carpet for their uh, response to the writer's guild strike, which was and they used that in variety reporting on the strike. So that yeah, was you got You got to get these things where it wasn't you all light, lightweight. You know, I was thinking a bit about how, you know, I think it was a year or so ago in the Oscars, the Academy was saying they were going to try to use the Met Gala as sort of a template of sorts for the Oscars. But the truth is the Met Gala is, I mean, nobody cares about the event that they're actually going to. It's just the carpet. It's so built around jet. Like everybody stopped watching, you know, it's not like, but it's Stay also an, an economical uh, ecosystem of its own in terms of all the donated um, fashion. You know, everybody's got an angle. Everybody's promoting yep. a house. You know, there's there's right. there's an enormous it's a philanthropic amount of money endeavor to, yeah. invested in each yeah. of in each of these these outfits. Of course, Jared Leto was was you know he 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 won the night with his with his Chopette, uh cat. <laughs> yeah, and then a quick uh, costume change too it's not like right. he was staying that it looked kind of hot but uh yeah that was funny i mean the thing is it was funny when the cat was there because it was like everybody thought the real car lagerfield cat was going to come right he left all his fortune to this poor animal and then the, this cat is there and then when, when he took his hat off and he revealed himself as jared leto i was like is this good or bad for Jared Leto? Like, are people just going to make fun of him for this, or does no, it just won the evening? I mean, he <laughs> he he got he he took. I mean, Janelle Monae, you know, was absolutely uh, in there too, with her layered look. That I don't know, Lil Nas X off of her. You know, <laughs> Lil Nas X was basically naked in silver sequins or something with that a thong. The, yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> it looked like a thong. And Florence Pugh's on. head was naked. She shaved it and had this beautiful gown and a beautiful this these. This headdress that stood straight up, you know, incredibly far, but she looked great. She had a, her head. A, you know, some people look good with yeah. a shaved head. Yeah, it was sort of like the mid midsummer as a, as a fashion statement or something like the next evolved state of all that. I do think it's funny that you know it's enjoyable. I'm not a very fashion forward person. I don't know if you can tell, but I enjoyed watching it. I mean, there's something about that the idea of just live streaming fashion on a red carpet 
that it's very much, you know, of the moment. It's it's, it's a kind it's of performance art when they do it yeah. right. I mean, you know, David Byrne shows up on a bicycle, right? You know, <laughs> so so yeah. everybody's inside. You know, there some people have a lot of fun with it. I mean, if Jessica Chastain shows up in a blonde, you know, all blonde with a Lagerfeld right. set of shades, you right. know, while she's on Broadway, she was just nominated for a Tony for Dolls. It was a Hat, Monday. Too. It was a yeah. Monday. She could. Yeah. She, and she has something to promote her Tony yeah. Award. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Yeah, but and I think it's but interesting. It's, it's like it's also no... celebrities. It's not just movies and film. It's yeah. sports. It's and, everything. And exactly. That's very of the moment and in very right. New York. Very yeah. New York. It's all kind of blended together, and there's no narrative arc. There's no stakes or anything. It's just exactly what you're looking at in the moment, and that that was kind of fascinating. So hey, if this writer's strike goes on, they could probably use some more red carpets to stay in the public eye because who knows how things are going to get disrupted. I was just so, glad that Billy. Eilish revealed that she had a figure and a forehead. <laughs> yeah, she not everyone was hidden away. Her look, you know. Yeah, you know, it was great. And Pedro so Pascal talk- wore shorts, so that was a moment. <laughs> That's hilarious. Nice sort of no, sneak peek of the his fashion thing going. He's not. Yeah. Swaggy. Well, you know, look. The most recent way people have been seeing Pedro Pascal is behind the mask of the Mandalorian. So he needs to kind of remind people that there's a person there just ahead of his. his, uh... He's out and about. There's no there's no hiding Pedro. It's a sneak peek of whatever might happen at Cannes when he goes as part of the Pedro Almodovar short. Can't wait to see that Western Western. um, with Ethan Hawke. Yeah. No, the other no, the other the other great reveal was Anna Wintour and Bill Nye as a couple you know, on the record. So there have been rumors that they've been dating for years. And, and they came up again in the they, Oscar campaign for Bill I Nye. Know, I know, I know. You and so the that. whole question is, are they or aren't they? And they finally denied that they're dating, that they're just old friends. So this was essentially like a performance. I was crushed uh, by this. Crushed. Yeah. I mean, who knows what, what even is friendship these days? It can take a lot of different forms. So anyway, why don't, why don't we talk about the strike? Cause you know, okay. we can't just do fashion the whole time as fun as that might be. We'll, we'll come back to that. No, eventually. The writer's strike is a serious, serious is thing. Happening. I was around um, for the last one and the one before that. And um, I can attest that they take, you know, the, what you, what you're seeing right now with all the, the rallies and the signs and everybody getting all excited is absolutely par for the course, you know, normal. And when you see the, the studios sort of say, Hey, we can hang in, we can, we can, we can last, you know, we're not going to hurt. That's also par for the course. These are the, this is the back and forth that goes on until they sit down Nothing's going to happen. And the way that they broke apart in the negotiations on the night of the deadline, there were so many issues left unresolved that it's uh, it's going to take a really long time because they have to rebuild the whole thing it is because of the streamers because of the changes yeah, in the industry the whole system the old deal that they had is no longer extant it just doesn't yeah. work anymore it's i i was just starting out sort of a young uh, a sort of new freelance journalist of sorts when the last strike happened and got sent to cover picket lines and talk to people like you know oh there's tim robbins i'm gonna go ask him about what's on the line and it was a pretty straightforward set of demands compared to the kind of landscape that we're dealing with now where it's like being a freelance writer in hollywood and a gig economy 
all these people are talking about how they have to like drive Uber and stuff like that to supplement their income, not just because of, you know, the lack of residuals on a lot of streaming shows, but because the contracts are so short, you can't even have like a sustainable career for a long period of time on a big show. It used to be that on a network show, you could have, you know, 20 episodes, you know, these seasons that went on for a really long time and had residuals and you would make a lot of money. You would make money in between jobs. Now you have these six and seven and eight and 10 episode arcs. And you, if you're working for a streamer, there's no residuals, yeah. you know, the residuals are tiny and, and you, and what, what they're really talking about with the gig economy are the emerging rising young writers. It's about right. half, how you learn how to become uh, a writer and how do you get on a writer's room. And also these mini rooms, which, um, you know, they put them up together at the beginning before they've even ordered a pilot, before they've ordered anything, and they arc out the they they map out the whole the arcs of the season with this small group of people who may not even get hired and and uh, move on. And and it's it's a you can't make a living on those either. But yeah. the, the other thing that happens is that those people never get to be on set. They never get to learn what goes on, you know, during production. And that's part of the education of, of a writer. So there's a lot of issues at stake here. Yeah. And, and the other part of it is that everyone knows there's plenty of money being thrown around at the studios. Exec, top executive salaries have been public. So when you see that people are making, you know, tens of millions of dollars, you know, the sense that, you know, or hundreds of millions in the case, in of some cases, yeah. yeah. And David Zaslav. So it's like, what they're asking for, if you really crunch the numbers, doesn't seem like that much. It's just that the studio doesn't want to build its business model around what they're asking for. So well, one of the sticking points that I see very clearly is that they're asking for um, guaranteed number of writers in a room and a guaranteed yeah. length of time. And that is where the studios are really balking. And I can understand that because they don't want to pay for something that they don't need. And there are a lot of shows where a single writer like a, a Peter Morgan, you know, writes the whole thing for the crown. You know, he doesn't have a, the usual writer's room and they want to leave showrunners in charge of how many writers they actually need. I did an interview recently with Ryan Condal of House of the Dragon. He started with seven writers. And then yeah. in season two, he only need, needed five. So it wasn't like he was cheaping out or trying to save money or anything. It was what he needed. So well, I this is the whole thing with the, the economics of, of doing union projects in general. A lot of times, like you took, you look at like, ultra low budget projects that are non-union and it's like well they had to be non-union to be ultra low budget because once you're working with union guidelines there's this cost bake in baked into that and you know these capitalist models just are not built around the idea that you spend money unless you have like a specific return on that investment in mind but there's gonna have to be I mean, these people cannot stay, stay on strike forever. The studios cannot just have no new product. So there's going to be something that will have to change. it's going to hurt is where it's already hurting, which is at the uh, late night TV show. So it's the networks that are owned by studios who are, who are, who are going to feel the pressure the most first. And I would suggest in, and in broadcast television, they're going to feel the, the pressure first, the streamers, which who have a, a lot of money um, and a lot of banked projects. And they've been saying that they, they aren't going to hurt Apple and, and Netflix. Um, I have plenty of content. <laughs> 
out. They crank, you know? they crank they're, stuff out. They're, they're, yeah. they're just going to sit, you know, you, you crank, you know, exactly churn, churn it out. Um, that's what worries me is, and also they haven't been through this before. So what's going to have to happen, and this happens every time, is eventually when things get really bad, and that could be six months from now. I'm or not a year. Kidding. Yeah. It, when things get really bad and it's getting push come to shove time, that's when somebody emerges usually as a negotiator, some leader of of the industry. You know, once it was Ken Ziffrin, the lawyer, once it was uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, it could be someone like Bob Iger, who somehow comes to the table and brings everybody together and understands all the different issues right. from each side. And that's what would have to someone so an, an executive who can also speak to the concerns of on the creative side, or at least acknowledge that they matter. I mean, one thing that's new about the negotiation this time that certainly wasn't coming up 15 years ago was AI, you know, the role of artificial intelligence in, in playing, playing. And they're really a sort of I mean, dangerously far apart. Well, that. yeah. And, and because I don't know the if you uh, have to be in control of the AI, they have to be in control of it or, I, or it's, it's going to run amok. I agree. I do have, because of new media is of tremendous interest to me, a lot of strong feelings about how this kind of technology is seen. And I, and I think that the way in which the WGA is making certain demands for the technology needs to evolve because basically what they're saying is that they, they don't want to be, they don't want AI generated content to be treated as literary content. So you're adapting something that say you use chat GPT to create. The problem with that is that it's not just chat GPT. AI is this ever evolving equation. Like there's a program called runway that's text to video and that's ever evolved. So eventually you could get to the point where it's like you write a text prompt and something could create a, you know, like a rough cut of something. And then, you know, you just fill it in with actors or whatever. So like that could be basically for people. Yeah. I think the, the new frontier of creativity is learning how to, how to use AI to create content. But as, also as, how to control know. the rules around it. Right. I think that if you're going to right now, it's a wild West situation. I can see the studios. I get them. They're going to be, <laughs> they're going to be going in there and ordering up uh, scripts right away. Right. Yeah. Well, I, and and I you bet know? you the dirty little secret, a lot of screenwriters are messing around with this stuff, even if they don't want to admit, admit it. Because it's actually, to. There's no reason why they shouldn't if it helps no. them, but they need to be given control of it. They That's the thing. I, I think responsible for it. I don't I think that what the WGA should be asking for is any AI generated project needs to involve a WGA member in the initial, like if in chat GPT is an interesting example. The we, producer we shouldn't be prompts. using it. They shouldn't be creating it. It right. has you, to be the writers. Exactly. So, so writers need, I, I've been saying this to a lot of people, like the screenwriting professors need to be incorporating this kind of process into how they teach screenwriting. Cause it's just the, the new, a new aspect of the process. And so they need to be asking for that. What the studios seem to be saying now is basically they'll agree to meeting periodically to talk about that's the bullshit. technology. That's complete bullshit. Right. It's more it's like you need of, an overarching rule. They want to be in control of it. That's what the studios yeah. want. And they're going to have to give that up because but, it, it won't work any other way. But the demand needs to be basically at bro broader than what there's. I think that the writers need to be basically saying any use of AI needs to involve the writer from the earliest stage. Correct. So, but we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I haven't been to any of these picket lines yet, but I'm curious to see how much noise they keep making. I mean, it well, is kind of like the Met rally, Gala, right? It's a performance. It's part of that. But, but the big rally that, that they had last night at the Shrine had um, an enormous number of people there, like 1800 people showed up and yeah. 
yeah. six of the guilds showed up to show solidarity. So if you start having situations where the IA and the DGA, which uh, the DGA has a, and the AMTTP, the SAG-AFTRA have, have, a, yeah. have a June 30th deadline for their contracts. So we could get into a situation where, like, for example, Ryan Condal's uh, season two of House of the Dragon is shooting in London right now, yeah. even even though they're saying there's no work to be done on the But script. there's always writers get brought in to tweak things and stuff, so they can't well, do he's that. He's the right writer. Now. He's the yeah. showrunner, but he shouldn't be writing anything. Um, so that's an interesting situation. So I don't know if the different guilds are showing solidarity, uh, they could hold up production completely. Right. And I know we want to talk about the Academy made some rule changes, but one thing that's sort of relevant here is that you have a bunch of public events where people are supposed to be promoting work from Cannes to Emmy season. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Emmy season is, I was with someone last night who was involved in this. A lot of the writers are not participating. They're canceling their events. Yeah. They're and then be doing any, uh, any. Yeah. They're not allowed to. It's part, they'd get kicked out of the WGA if they, if they did. And, and it can, the writers on, on, uh, you have, Killers of the Flower Moon, you have Indiana Jones, you have Asteroid City, which is a really interesting question because somebody like Wes Anderson. You could just say he's not participating in any press. Right. Well, I'm sure he loves that. Typical anyway. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But it's an interesting kind of a question of can Wes Anderson promote Asteroid City as director but not writer, as opposed to Roman Coppola, who is a co-writer. So I don't know if that's been. They'll just let the they'll just let the actors do the promoting, which I think would be just 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 fine. Yeah. Um, But if this tips over into Oscar season with the fall, that's that'll be an interesting conundrum. Yeah. So let's but talk the, about the Academy stuff, though, because that, so we've been anticipating these rule changes. And a few weeks ago, we talked about how there was, um, you know, a leak of sorts that the Academy was talking about changing um, theatrical requirements. So, so we that don't have was that a, yet. That was, they, they decided to kick that can down the road, partly because they recognized that it would be controversial. If they went for 22 cities and they went for, a, you know, a wide release requirement, um, for these movies to be eligible for the Oscar, then they would be hurting uh, by definition uh, a lot of independent releases. And so I think they know that they have to sit down and do a much more thorough uh, thinking through of all the issues, not only from the point of view of what they want to do to hit Netflix or to support theatrical, but from the point of view of what the uh, optics would be. Right. Right, because as you said, it, it was sort of it, it. It hints at problems for lower budget movies that don't have the resources to get into all these markets and so forth. So nice of them to delay that one while they deal more directly with things that are easier to figure out, like the campaigning issue. So now it's uh, unlikely yeah. we'll see. Uh, it's an so Andrea Riseborough thing. <laughs> right. Well, they're trying to, they definitely are trying to crack down and they're saying they can only have, you know, four hosted screenings in phase one and no hosted screenings in phase, phase two. These are the, the events at people's homes with, uh, you know, you know, Jessica Chastain, if she's not on Broadway, inviting people over to her house or whatever it is. So, so that isn't supposed to happen as often and it isn't supposed to be paid for by um, the producers and distributors. And that is somewhat unenforceable. In other words, yeah. if it's if it's an FYC event, they go through the Academy mailing list 
and they're part of the academy rules and they have to follow them and and they're letting lots of q and a's happen that's not being restricted anymore but mm-hmm. if the if it's private and it's it, it's somebody's house there's no academy monitoring of that so everybody's going to be trying to call on the each wild, other wild west. you're going to have people though trying to say like, ooh that person broke the rules and then there's going to be like all these like attempts at investigations and stuff so I, i'm curious it's, how it's, that plays it, 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 they it, let me just say this, that the Academy, um, in the history of all of this campaigning, people know what they can get away with. And yeah, they get and they will <laughs> and they will get away with that. No, but I did think it was interesting that they were very specific about not you can't talk about who you voted for and you can't talk to the press anonymously either. So we'll see how well, that they never the, were supposed to do that, that anyway. You know, I mean, that the, if it's after the ballots have closed, it's a free world. You know, they can do whatever they want. It, it's been true for a long time. They weren't supposed to do it before. <laughs> you know, That's not. Yeah. Brand new. But but the but the but the other thing about what you can do online in social media and what you can talk about, I'm glad they're cracking down on that. They should. That's, that's well, it's important. again, though, it's still sort of hard to police certain things. Right. I mean, like how many but at it, least they've spelled it out. You know, you're not allowed to say that. So and so should Davis win over this person or, of getting yeah. in somebody else. You know, you're not allowed yeah. to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, if it's like social member. media is, is such a complicated beast. Right. Like there could be. I mean, we had that thing with Michelle Yeoh right before voting closed where she posted a a story that wasn't her story, but it pointed something out about Kate Blanchett versus her. And then she had to take it down. And I feel like stuff, stuff along Even those Janet lines. Yang, you know, they, they put in a rule that the governors aren't allowed to promote. <laughs> yeah. Well, she, so she definitely, had to take her, uh, her promotion of Michelle Yeoh yeah, yeah, down yeah. as well. So yeah, they're trying, they're trying. It's, it's pretty much the same, the same old, same old. So the most surprising change was we we were anticipating there would be discussion of the international rules. And, and we've talked a lot about kind of how problematic it is uh, uh, to have, you know, one country, one film, even if, say, you know, a country like Iran jails, you know, its best filmmakers. And then you're at the mercy of that country or a country like India doesn't submit RRR, even though that's obviously the one that might win or, or whatever. Brazil or Russia. But these are countries that have, you know, government run committees you know you know putin gets involved in what they yeah. submit at, at, not this from past Russia. year he didn't because they yeah. didn't submit. But, but the this but this the whole question of telling these committees that they have to be 50 percent filmmakers and craftspeople i just think it's very um it's bold it it, it it's very uh direct of the academy yeah. and and the, if you i mean the, it matters to these countries to be uh in the oscar race they want to be so that most of them are going to comply but but it's still um up to who's the person who makes the final decision on that committee that's who's going to call the shots it, well, even if I, they do change the con- the the group that picks the films. I think what's also notable is that so there's a there's a full time person overseeing this category now at the academy, coordinating with different countries and helping them sort of get a handle on the process. And I think part of the challenge is that Who's, Europe. What's the name? What's uh, Delcia Barrera, who used right. to be at Sundance, um, but the 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 big challenge is that you have a lot of countries that don't totally grasp the way this process works or how to do it right. There's so many different kinds of rules. It doesn't have to be in the language of your country and things like that. So you have, for example, Africa, where 
there are great filmmakers, but it often those countries don't get into the process. And if you had filmmakers as a part of that process, they might help sort of figure that out in a way where as a government officials might not be as as you know well attuned to the needs of their local communities. And so hopefully it shakes things up in that sense that you're not just seeing the same kinds of films. I still feel like the biggest challenge is having just one country, one film is it's just like a limited perspective on the year in international cinema. But I don't know exactly how long it's going to take before that's really more broadly. They're going to keep tinkering and trying, you know, they want to make it better. You know, that's that's their goal. My question is, how do they enforce it? You know, does each country have to submit a list of who's on the committee Probably. and so yeah. forth? And then they have to go over it and figure out who they are. I mean, that could yeah, take yeah. a long time. So yeah, yeah. that that person <laughs> is going to be very busy, I think, yeah. you know, trying to, yeah. to monitor all of this. Well, I'll be thinking about this at, at Cannes this year. When we're two weeks out from that, very few American films. But as we've seen, Cannes does really end up being this feeder of sorts for the international award season. Every year there's a list no. of, of films and the Palme d'Or winner often gets in there. So they picked the jury. They and did. I have to say, it, one person online was sort of like, ew, who is this jury? I think it's a very edgy jury. A very well, interesting jury. Julia de Cornow yeah. is is, you know, is no slouch. And well, yeah, her and Ruben Austin are the two former Palm d'Or winners on the jury. And they're right. both not like the most uh, you know, conventional. No, players. the taste is there. And 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 then you have Paul Dano, who's who's a, who's a very uh uh uh, erudite uh, fellow, uh, an actor and director and writer. And, and, uh, and so again, so is Brie Larson. Brie Larson. Yeah. yeah. So the two the of them is a very interesting you have. Yeah. I mean, Brie Larson, I can't quite, I thought the movie that she directed a few years ago was solid. I can't quite get a grasp on her sensibilities. You know, like we start playing sort of like fantasy football of sorts with the Palme d'Or race. And it's, it's, you know, you have no idea how things go. It's like, I assume Julia DeCorno and Ruben Oslin are not going to go for the, you know, nothing the tier or whatever. But I remember our argument about, you know, like you, you called it when Ken Loach got the Palme d'Or for I, Daniel Blake, because it was like a very actor centric jury. And then also that was the year of Tony Erdman. And um, we found out later George Miller was not a huge fan of that movie. So like it, it was never going to happen there. But this year it's like, does this mean like somebody like Catherine Bria with her, you know, transgressive sexual drama? Has She's going to have a better shot, shot right. than I mean, with a different jury. But 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 also Damon Sifron. Um, is is yeah. a very interesting filmmaker. I love. It's been Wild a while Tales. since Wild Tales, and I know um, he had a hard. He was supposed to make a do a remake of Running Man. That he's fell done apart, some series, so. some TV series, and stuff like that. He's very successful. Um, but but he's he's got um he's got an edgy sensibility also. He and, and he's funny. He is funny the way Ostland is funny. You know, very yeah. edgy. Yeah, and you know you have filmmakers like Jonathan Glazer who has this uh, a twenty four movie. Uh, in competition that's about like a, an Auschwitz romance and uh, be interesting to see how something, somebody like that might sort of get a chance to, to, uh, you know, another chance to sort of prove themselves after not working for a while, maybe differently than say a Nuri Bilga Ceylon or, you know, Ken Loach or Wim Wenders. There's a lot of people who are sort of like the old guard who have been respected and won prizes and all that kind of stuff. And then you have other people who, you know, 
it's a lot of people who are very established, but some who have been sort of appreciated more than others. So I'm curious about that. And I'm also curious about how any of this affects the market. I mean, last year with Triangle Sadness, it feels like ages ago, but that was a sales title. That was the big acquisitions title at Cannes. Neon yes, ended up the getting The big it. one is now Todd Haynes' is May, December, which, yep. which com comes in with no. Or over in the Fortnite, the new Michelle Gondry film would, would have some profile. Um, but it's uh, there's a... There, and and there's another movie, the Henry VIII movie, Firebrand. Firebrand. That one with Jude Law and and Alicia Vikander. That's for sale too. Yeah, the Firebrand. So so it'll be interesting to see what happens on that front because I mean it's still no Netflix movies. I'm sure Netflix will be poking around. Apple will be poking around. Amazon is poking around. They're so going to look at the competition. Rumors. They're going to look at acquisitions titles. There's going to be a lot of packages in the market, new movies yeah. that haven't been made yet that that are being you know looking for some support from the North American side. But the and small companies are there too. And and they will probably be looking at these, Speaking you know, art of prospects. Which, you did a little research on IFC to see what the hell was going on over there. They've lost a couple of key players uh, in the last few months, including Ariana Baco, John Vanko. Uh, tell me what's going on. I mean, you might say they've lost all of the key players, at least based on, you know, what the company has been. It's it's a complete turnover. Uh, Scott Schumann, who's a veteran acquisitions guy right. at CBS. There a long never, time. Yeah. He, he's well known and liked in the industry, but he's new at IFC. Ariana had sort of brought him on board to run the acquisitions team in, during her tenure as, as president. And uh, it is now sort of in this interim role. I think what... The biggest challenge is that that is basically similar to what IFC has faced in the past, and that is that it is part of AMC, and AMC has a lot of different brands, and it's a publicly traded company, and it runs these brands for profit, and it's very hard with these film art house films of this profile to kind of meet the demands of a company that's that's you know squeezed by like a lot of other companies the economics of streaming and so forth and cut its uh its workforce by 20 percent uh as they said in their last earnings call and then so that side of things has created a real challenge and um i think because they didn't staff up this idea that ifc as well as shutter which is its streaming uh, horror uh brand as and and rlje which is more kind of like b movies all being run as like a single unit in a way has created real bandwidth issues. And that's frustrating to people, but it doesn't mean that IFC won't be a player. It can, I'm sure they're, you know, they will be there. They will be scouting for films and they still have IFC centered. They still have the potential to do day and date and different kinds of options for films. It's just a question of, you know, with a new team, you know, are they going to make offers on films that are competitive when other people are sort of poking around as well. I mean, I'm all the all the old school players are around, right? Magnolia is still there. Sony, Sony Pictures Classics, Classics is still yeah. Right. So it will be That's a, a good small scale market. Yeah. yeah, Kino yeah. Lorber and and of course Sideshow, which is former IFC people, can pick up movies and do these sort of you know, really incremental theatrical releases and that dovetail into streaming. That's what they did with EO. They're doing it now with Eight Mountains. So it's still a competitive market. It's just a very weird one because nobody really knows what succeeds now. The old rules of, of you know, we'll just do the platform release and it'll dovetail into Oscar season. Is well, and they're not also, what it used to they be. don't seem to have, what is their online uh, component looking like? I mean, do they have a way to make money 
um, outside of theatrical? That was always my question. Yeah, I mean, the 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 economics of VOD are very uh, confusing these days. I mean, okay. it's it's uh, AMC plus is essentially the output deal that IFC has within the, its company outside of uh, Shutter, which is a sort of niche streaming entity. So on the genre side of things, there is a kind of a business. But it, again, it's it's very unpredictable. It's very unstable. And so you can't make any hard promises about what kind of success something's going to have. I don't think this is just a challenge for IFC. I think it's a challenge for everyone. You know, it's the, like, the studio uh, distributors have output deals. They have different ways of getting um, yeah. PVOD and VOD up there. Yeah, exactly. But like the bigger studios aren't necessarily going to go after a lot of these films. So you have still, you know, a Hulu output deal for certain companies like like Neon and Magnolia and and Searchlight as well, which we'll be scouting as well. So, you know, a lot of these films has its it's it 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 puts its stuff up uh, on VOD with it and Peacock ultimately so that so the economics of streaming are still helping the art house market. We just don't know exactly what that means in terms of who has the upper hand in negotiations. You liked Um, uh, you liked eight mountains, uh, as I recall. I did. I did. I I saw it can last year. It's a very uh, sort of tranquil beautiful story and it's it seems to be doing well in theatrical release which makes sense because that's really the only way you can appreciate a movie set in the italian alps that is very visual like that so well i checked out the um, david lowry uh peter and wendy which was beautifully mounted it's on disney plus it's yet another story on peter pan and wendy and it isn't entirely successful because peter pan himself isn't entirely successful which is a slight problem but captain hook and everyone else are fantastic you Jude can't Law. go wrong with Jude we Law, Jude Captain Law. Hook, right? I mean, it, it's a nice way to set the stage for him in, in this can movie as, as Henry. Well, how would you yeah. how would you identify the problem with 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 uh, with Peter Pan on that? I film? think it's just a very traditional. You, you mean the uh, the challenge overall challenge of dealing with Peter Pan or, or with this particular no this particular one? one. I mean, this one is it's. I didn't mind it. I just found it to be very conventional. Very familiar. Yeah. It's just familiar. And I suppose for a certain younger demographic who had, who isn't familiar with Peter Pan, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And and maybe that's what Disney wanted. Wanted. I'm um, sure it is. I it made me think about how much I actually respected what Ben Zeitlin did with Wendy, a very strange and and outside the box interpretation of the Peter Pan story that I think deserves a second look. Deserve a second look. This is way more successful. Way more. Way more. And and Lowry just has control over his 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 craft. I mean, he's it's just gorgeously wrought. You know, it's well done. All right, Anne. Well, enjoy your weekend. If I don't see you on a picket line, I'll see you on the podcast. Okay. See you later. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.